1896 and Latter-day Saint women are making their mark. After receiving an education from colleges and universities in the United States, educated women are creating an atmosphere of opportunity and progress for their peers in Utah. This inspiring moment in church history is next in Chapter 4, A Great Amount of Good. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Today, we're excited to be discussing Chapter 4 of Saints, Volume 3, A Great Amount of Good. Joining us today is Lisa Olsen-Tate, a general editor of the Saints Project, Kate Holbrook, a managing historian in the Church History Department, and Amber Taylor, a historian in the Church History Department. Thank you all for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, James. Thank you. We are grateful that you've come on to talk to us about this chapter, but I do think it's important before we get started that we talk about a very exciting project that the three of you are involved in, and that is the Young Women's History. And this is probably something that our listeners haven't heard of yet. Could the three of you just take a moment to tell us about this Young Women's History project? I will start us off. This is a project, I think Lisa and I were the ones that kept saying, there's this real gap. There are no good histories of the Young Women organization years ago. And so finally we proposed that we write one and there was a resounding yes in response. And so this is a history of really the whole organization. The book ends around 2018 and begins just a titch before the Young Ladies Retrenchment Society, which is the first version. Yeah, we've been working on this project for a number of years. It's been exciting because it's basically an unplowed field. We've been the first to even look at a lot of the sources and to really trace this story in the kind of detail that we've been able to do for the books. So we're excited. We think it's going to be a real contribution and that it'll be really interesting for a broad audience of readers. I joined the project couple of years in. And it was really exciting, a steep learning curve. They had done so much work in terms of research and compiling material. It was like drinking from a fire hydrant trying to catch up. But there were also areas where there was still a lot of work to be done. And it was so fun and so interesting. Like Lisa said, areas that had not been touched, research that had not been done. And it was really exciting to jump in on, on that project. And really excellent researchers, really excellent Team, I think we've produced a really exciting project. It is exciting. Thank you for that introduction. We really look forward to that. Your expertise in this field is going to be of great value to us today as we talk about this chapter, as we are once again engaged with the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association. Kate, perhaps to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about the state of the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association at this time? I can. There was a journal for the organization. They were getting a more centralized order and leadership structure for the organization because it started off with just little societies here and there, especially all over Utah. And so the organization was really coming into its own and getting enough of a history behind it that people knew what to expect. People would now anticipate that a young woman, when she was old enough, join this organization and be shaped by it and read some of the publications that were written for it. So it was being accepted more as part of the fabric of the whole church. Let's take a moment just to listen to this short extract from the book. 
For the first conference, MIA leaders divided the program equally between speakers from their organizations. Susa, the second to last on the program, encouraged her listeners to have good character and live righteously. The experience was somewhat new for Susa, since women in the church at this time did not usually speak to mixed audiences except to bear testimony. Now, she and other leading women had the opportunity to preach to both men and women in the same setting. So Lisa, as we read this chapter, we find that female leaders are now beginning to speak to these mixed audiences of young men, young women. In the history of the Young Ladies Organization, how significant was this change? It was pretty big. As the Young Ladies Organization is founded and grows in the 1870s and 1880s, it's really located within what they would have thought of as the women's sphere in the church at the time. The Relief Society and Eliza R. Snow as the president is the umbrella organization, the leadership for all of the women's organization and women's work in the church. And then after Sister Snow dies near the end of the 1880s, the dynamics start to shift a little bit. And Elmina Shepard Taylor, who was called and set apart as the first general president of the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association in 1880, Sister Taylor begins to assert her leadership and to come into her own as the president of the Young Ladies Organization. The general board expands and they begin to do things like standardized lessons and the Young Woman's Journal is published as the magazine of the organization. And so it begins to have more of its own identity as the Young Woman's Organization. And then at the same time, as the chapter describes, They begin to collaborate and work together with the young men's organization much more than they had done before. There had always been questions about should the young men and the young women meet together? How much should they do together? There was concerns that if they met together, it would just turn into a sparking meeting with the kids flirting with each other and that it would undermine the purposes of the organizations. And so there'd always been some back and forth about that. But By the middle of the 1890s, they began to recognize that there are real opportunities in working together. And so they hold this first joint conference of the two mutual improvement associations. And that sets a precedent that's going to last that tradition of what came to be called June conferences. It's going to last until 1975. So it's a landmark moment in the development of these organizations. And it's also important because as the young ladies and young men's organizations begin doing more together, working together, developing joint programs and plans and calendars, then it shifts the young ladies organization from being kind of in that women's sphere, uh, daughter to the Relief Society, into becoming more of a parallel youth organization. And of course, that's how we think about it today. So there's a lot going on in just this initial conference and these initial efforts. Well, you mentioned the precedent of having young men and young women work together. And I just think that's a really important pattern that was created and that has lasted and been a really significant contribution to the leadership in the church eventually, having them start out as youth working together. Lisa, what messages were leaders giving to young women at this time? 
Yeah, we see in the chapter, it, it mentions how it's significant for women to be standing up and speaking in front of men and women and to be recognized as leaders and authorities, not just in that women's sphere, but in the church generally. And during this decade of the 1890s, when there's so many big transitions taking place within the community, with the end of plural marriage and statehood and so many really wrenching changes happening, they're really concerned about the youth. And they're really concerned about the faithfulness of the youth and all of the new voices and temptations that they feel are available to the youth. And so the young women leaders really develop an emphasis on each young woman gaining her own testimony and having faith and having a relationship with her father in heaven so that she can have the the strength and the ability to withstand the temptations and difficulties that they see around the young people at the time, which not that much has changed, right? That's, yeah, that's pretty timeless messaging. <laughs> yeah. Lisa, we've previously spoken about Sousa and Leah here on the podcast, and I think our readers are going to really enjoy seeing their relationship develop and grow, not just through these first chapters, but but far into the book. And right here, we're experiencing this story of how Leah is trying to find her place in the church, which you know is something that we've we've all done, whether we've been born in the church or we've converted to the church, we've had to find our place in the church, find how we connect to it. But Kate, I'm wondering, what was it about Leah and Danette's decision to seek education in the eastern United States that was so significant for Utah women? Going and pursuing education elsewhere allowed them to return home with credentials and work as professionals. It gave them status in the fields in which they wanted to work. And this wasn't the beginning of this process. Latter-day Saint women for a few decades now and men had been traveling to the East Coast where there were more established educational institutions to learn what they could from the leading scholars there and then bring that back to Utah. But, you know, might be surprising to some people and certainly important that women and even young women were doing this as well as men. It launched their careers. This is true today too, but it's much more common today. But if you have a certain credential, then you can lean on that. People turn to you more often. They rely on you more often. They respect what you have to say more often. So all of those results came from the fact that these young women were brave enough to go east together. They were at the same school and learn in this place that maybe to them felt foreign and scary because they were a generation that was born in Utah. So that was what they knew. And the Latter-day Saint culture was the culture that they knew. So this was a big, brave step for them. This has been one of my favorite things as I've read the different volumes of saints that getting an education, leaving your hometown to get that education is something that's a lot more common. But back then they were so brave and I love the support that they had to be able to do this. And then it only benefited the community in amazing ways as they came back and were able to be professionals. But what were the concerns about heading East? If you look at the Young Women's Journal, in the 1890s, which is edited by Sousa, 
by Leah's mother. There's a lot of articles in there promoting education. They publish accounts from women who have gone east to go to school, and it's all very exciting. There's also an undercurrent of concern. And there are editorials and articles about how dangerous education might be for young Latter-day Saints and how it might cause them to lose their faith. And so there's this push and pull tension. They're excited about the opportunities. Sousa herself wants her daughter to take advantage of them. But at the same time, there's some uncertainty and some concern, as I say, in this period of transition where they're recognizing we're not isolated anymore. We're going to have to learn how to get along in the world. And there's all these new modern educational ideas being put forward. And so how are we going to navigate all of this? And that's where this emphasis on faith and testimony is really important for these young people who go East, as well as you'll find in Cambridge, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in these college towns where the Latter-day Saint youth are going to study, you'll find that they form little enclaves of Latter-day Saint groups where they'll meet together. I mean, there's no such thing as wards and stakes out in the United States at this time. And so they form their own little groups to maybe have a sacrament meeting to study the scriptures together and to rely on each other for support as Latter-day Saints in this environment. There's excitement and encouragement for education and there's uncertainty and concern about what the implications of it might be. I think it's worth pointing out that that is duality that there is both concern and excitement and support at the same time. The idea of going and getting the credentials and coming back and bringing it, that had been going on for a while. And that was something that was a, a, a consistent concern to leave your center, to leave your safe haven that you have in Utah and then come back always is going to engender this hope and this excitement at the same time that there's a a certain risk associated with it. And so prayers and blessings, trying to help that person make the most of the opportunity and not be endangered by it. So Kate, can you tell us about some of the other young women who are heading east in pursuit of their education around this time? I'd love to, James. And maybe it's worth uh, mentioning the women who had gone earlier, because when Leah went east, there were several women in the church practicing medicine in Utah with degrees that they had earned from the East. Romania Bunnell Pratt was the first uh, woman to become a doctor from medical school in the church. She had graduated from the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia in 1877. Ellis Reynolds Shipp graduated from that same medical school the following year. Margaret Curtis Shipp Roberts graduated about five years later in 1883. And then something really exciting, Martha Cannon had earned her medical degree from the University of Michigan in 1880, and then a degree in pharmaceuticals at the University of Pennsylvania in 82. And then she'd also at the same time earned this degree in public speaking in oratory from the National School of Elocution and Oratory in Philadelphia. So she has all of these credentials, all of these skills. And then in November 1896, which is just two months after Leah went to start her program in Brooklyn at the Pratt Institute, two months after Leah left, Martha Cannon was elected the first female state senator in the country. This was a really exciting time of women having made this decision and come back, remained loyal, and then contributing, training other women in state 
And then they were continuing to go out of state to get training. And Utah, a brand new state, and uh, women were running for office and being some of them elected to office. So I imagine that there was a great deal of enthusiasm for those who cared about it, <laughs> at the possibilities that were opening up. Certainly the regular woman never left the state and probably married and had children and raised her children and worked in the church, which was always something that got women to focus beyond their own home more broadly in society. But it was an exciting time. And then it didn't end. In 1902, Minerva Teichert, many people are familiar with her art. She went to San Francisco. She was only 14 years old and she went as what today we call a nanny, but she took art classes there and she loved it. And so then she moved to Chicago to study at the Art Institute of Chicago. And then she ran out of money. So she came home and she earned more money. And then she moved to New York to study at the Art Students League of New York. And then, and this will be my last one, but in the 1920s, the next little, these are tiny generations, they're not quite full generations, a young woman named Virginia Cutler earned her degree at the University of Utah, but when her husband died in 1931 and she had a toddler and realized she was pregnant after her husband had died, she went to Stanford University to earn a master's degree. And then she went to Cornell for a PhD. And she also attended courses at Vassar and at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And then she came home and poured all of her skills into first the University of Utah and then Brigham Young University. So this is an, an anomaly. There's a history before it. It continues on and continues today. And isn't that amazing how, even when there's so much going on in Utah, there's this encouragement and these women who are going out, gaining educations, bringing that expertise back. And there isn't this lockdown. I imagine that some people just see frontier life, Latter-day Saint women tied to their home. But here we've got successive waves, which is amazing and just runs counter to what people might expect or what people have maybe heard about life in Utah at that time. It's, it's quite amazing. Yes. Well, let's read a short extract from the book, uh, which talks about Leah and Donette's experience East. In New York City, Leah and Donette had experiences their mother's generation could hardly have imagined. Latter-day Saint women from that older generation, like other American women at the time, had usually received only a grade school education. Some did go East to study medicine and midwifery, but most married young had children and helped establish homes and family businesses in their settlements. Many had never traveled outside Utah Territory. Amber, once these trailblazing Latter-day Saint women came home, how were they seen and how were they treated by those who were in Utah and along the Wasatch Front? Well, as we've already discussed they came back and made real contributions. They began programs in the local universities. They forged alliances and began whole new courses and helped to create this atmosphere of opportunity for women here that didn't have the opportunity to leave for them to, to enroll in courses. I think one of the coolest things is the opportunities for women that haven't previously been opened, as Lisa was talking about, this women's sphere that was, was kind of expected. A lot of this is still taking place. A lot of this education and these professional opportunities are still taking place in this women's sphere. 
But one of the ways that pushes beyond that a little bit is the missionary opportunities that come out of this period. As the chapter describes with Elizabeth Claridge McCune, her opportunity to stand, this spontaneous opportunity to stand and describe women's place and, and the opportunities granted to women in Utah begins a trajectory of bringing women out of Utah, not only to get an education and not only to expand their professional abilities, but to share the gospel. Although women had been sharing the gospel in myriad ways since the beginning of the church to officially be called as missionaries of the church to preach the gospel. So I think that is really significant that it opens up a new door that women haven't necessarily been given up to that point. Amber, thank you. By the 1890s, they are actually talking about the pioneers as something in the past. They see themselves as as beyond that experience in a lot of ways. And yet there are still a lot of places where people are living in near frontier conditions. So the progression towards modern life is very uneven in this period. Well, that was one thing to jump back to what Lisa was talking about earlier. Lisa, since you brought up the pioneer generation, this is the generation where they do start recognizing the, the pioneer generation as a generation of the past and as there being a risk of losing that connection and the strength that the pioneer generation maybe symbolized. And so that's another message that they're frequently sharing with the young women. Don't lose the strength of your forefathers. I think that's really important to make because as we read in the chapter, as Leah is preparing to leave, she receives that blessing from President Smith, Donette's father, who is hoping and praying and blessing her that she'll be able to face temptation. And these weren't just women who were looking to get away from Utah and to go do their own thing. They are staying true to their testimonies. You know, they're sharing the gospel, they're praying, they're living the gospel in a different setting than what they had previously been used to. And despite the new experiences that they're having, they're able to to retain their faith and share it. And, and that's just something that is perhaps a, a testament to their parents and to their own individual faith that they had gained at this point. Well, Kate, maybe we could talk a little bit about Leah's return to Utah and how she's using her recently gained knowledge to teach and to be involved in society in Utah. I'm glad you asked. I'm a real fan of Leah Widzow. <laughs> Leah's mother was close friends with the president of BYU, and she was doing some teaching at BYU. And while Leah was away, her mother helped secure her a job as the first domestic science teacher at BYU. Domestic science was a new science at the time, and you might have a hint for what it means, domestic. It was about the home. There were different branches of domestic science, and the branch that Leah focused on was nutrition how to best nourish the body, how to best encourage health through exercise, um, but especially through food. Lee was there very briefly because she agreed to marry John. And so she wasn't there for years. She, I believe she was only there for a year. But the degree and then the experience teaching set the stage for uh, her continuing contributions to the church, including articles that she wrote in church magazines, including around 1930, a little before, a little after, served as a mission leader with her husband over the European mission. He was the mission president. I like that now we call these people mission leaders, so we also have a title for the wife because she did very important work while they were there. Uh, while they were there, she helped oversee a revision of the beehive 
handbook, so it was more applicable for European girls and their leaders. She organized the compilation of a word of wisdom compliant cookbook in the mission. She and her husband, a little after their mission, co-authored a book on the word of wisdom that was used as the priesthood manual of study in 1938. So it's what men studied when they gathered for their priesthood meetings each week. And then she wrote another book on the Word of Wisdom later on her own. This is just a taste. She made many other contributions as well, but they were really rooted in the skills she learned, earning her degree, the way she learned to read studies and report on the findings of studies and then write about those in a professional way. And then that firsthand experience she had of teaching younger people what she had learned. Well, and I just can't help but think of all the female role models or examples that I've had in my life in different aspects of life, whether it's church or professional or in my education. And so I just imagine the amazing things that they're doing for not only the young women to see how they've gone and gotten education and now they're contributing back in Utah, but even Kate, you mentioned earlier, the women who stayed and got married and had families and contributed in their church callings. I just think what a strength to them to see all of these variety of ways that women can participate in the gospel and in building their communities. And I just think that would be a really valuable feeling and just really amazing legacy that they're creating. It's very inspiring. I'm so glad you mentioned those women too, Shaylin, because those are the ones that Leah devoted her life to serving, making sure they had training materials, some through the church, some through the state, some through extension training to help them do things more effectively at home. She wanted them to make sure they were being well-nourished and knew how to feed their children and their husbands in a way that would keep them healthy and strong, but also ways to make their work a little more efficient so that it wasn't such a drudgery. She really helped the everyday woman. Now, in this volume of saints, of course, we have many Latter-day Saint women who we seek to highlight and to use as characters to tell the story of the church. And we've mentioned her already, but Elizabeth McCune is another one of these ladies that is a trailblazer in her own right. So, Amber, could you tell us a little bit more about Elizabeth McCune and some of her activities over in Great Britain? Yeah, absolutely. She's a really interesting woman. She was born in England and her family joined the church when she was just a baby. They, of course, migrated to Utah and she married and her husband made a lot of money. And Sousa loved that Elizabeth used her wealth to promote the gospel. There's this whole series in the Young Woman's Journal of telling Elizabeth's story and telling the ways that she uses her position in society to further the work of the gospel. And a lot of that is autobiographical, Elizabeth telling her own story. So she and her husband go on this Europe tour and her son Raymond is a missionary in Great Britain at this moment. So she goes and she spends a lot of time with her son and other elders. And she tells how she goes with them as they go out to preach and at the beginning, she and the other women that go with them are standing to the side, just holding the hats and the scarves of the men so that they can do their preaching work. But she recognizes, even in that moment, how great it would be for women to be able to share their story. She recognizes that women could do a lot of good work, if for no other reason than because there are no women preaching, they would get attention. And that attention would allow them a platform to share the gospel. And 
She doesn't seem to realize that she's going to get that opportunity, but she does when she goes to this conference. And President McMurrin has been really fed up with Jarman and his accusations about women in Utah. And he says, well, well, here we have a woman. We have an example of a woman from Utah, and she's going to talk to us later tonight. Come listen. And they pack the house. And she tells how she's, I'm paraphrasing, but that she's traveled all over the world and never met any women with the kinds of opportunities and the kind of status, women that stand shoulder to shoulder with their husbands. She's never met women with greater value than in Utah. And she makes kind of an interesting comment where she says if these Latter-day Saint women in Utah had to do all of the work that are expected of women here in Great Britain, they'd be really frustrated. They wouldn't want to do it because they have a kind of status and a kind of place in society that women other places don't enjoy. And afterward, of course, men come up and shake her hand and say, we heard the spirit through your voice and congratulate her on her presentation in that period. And it's after that, that the mission president over the European mission writes back to Salt Lake and points out women could really do some good in the mission field. We should consider having some sisters come and serve. And interestingly, the first two sisters who are called are graduates of Brigham Young Academy. And speaking of the way that these women who have gone east and, and received their credentials from these educational centers, the impact that they have, they come and establish their own credentials, these, their own, these programs that offer women who don't necessarily get the chance to go east, but they can study at Brigham Young Academy, they can study at the University of Utah, they get their own credentials. And so these young women, Inez Knight and Jenny Brimhall, they are graduates of Brigham Young Academy. They're the first sisters called. And they go to Europe and begin this whole new period of women serving as, as missionaries. I think that's such a great story of how one sister, through her example and through her efforts, the priesthood leaders recognized her impact and were able to request that. And in this case, Elizabeth McCune has unintentionally had such a lasting impact on the history of missionary work in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, her willingness to participate while over there visiting the country has, has had a lasting impact. This has been such a great conversation about some really incredible women from this time and, and the opportunities that they had. And I would just love to know from any of you or all of you, what legacy has this given to women today? Well, you're talking to three women who have traveled outside of their native born land to get educated. I mean, certainly that's something that we can appreciate on a personal level, this opportunity and this open door that these women have provided the path that they provided. That's something that's certainly important to me. They laid the groundwork to continue on what Amber was saying. It was a part of our theology that education was important, but they really showed that it was important for women as well as for men and attainable for women as well as for men. And many of the women we've been talking about had children as well and and figured out how to be good parents as well as contributing in a professional sense to the larger world. Yeah, and I think that we should also mention another important woman in this chapter, Sister Waanga, our Maori sister from New Zealand. This is another woman who has left her homeland, come out of her comfort zone, in this case, so that she can obtain the blessings of the temple. And in coming to Utah, she is able to do temple work for her family, for Maori saints, that's just literally not available to them in any other way. 
And this is a period we'll see as we move forward in the chapters of the book, that this is also a period where temple work is rising in importance and where women's contributions to temple work are going to be really important. And so Sister Wahanga introduces us to that theme, as well as giving us a really lovely story in her own right. Well, thank you all so very much for joining us this week. It's been wonderful to be able to hear from all of you, and thank you for participating. And thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. Until next time, I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening.